missed you last week. Um, really quick, I think Ricky already escaped the room. I want to say thanks to Rick uh, for bringing the word last week. I listened to the message. Uh, it was a great word out of Jude. Um, and where are my Navy guys at? You guys are hiding in the back this week. I heard you were in the third row last week and didn't know what a combat air patrol was. And also didn't know that high value airborne asset patrol is what a have a pee. That's what when you're doing the armed escort, that's what that is, right? Have a pee. Um, don't worry. Those of you guys who end up in pointy nose jets will will learn lots about that. Um, but Ricky did an awesome job uh, going through the book of Jude. He preached an entire book of the Bible in one service. Um, that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll do Philemon or something like that. Hey, if you got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you open them up to the book of Luke, chapter four? The book of Luke. Uh, today we are going to begin a new series, uh, which we're, which I've, I've entitled Walking with Jesus. We're going to be walking through some of the highlights of Jesus's ministry over the next six weeks or so. Um, we're going to spend time going through the gospel of Luke together. And my goal for you as we go through this series is that we will um, be better um, prepared to, to really understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus as, as we examine Jesus's life and his ministry, and that as we celebrate Easter, we will really understand, like deep down, we'll understand what a big deal it was that Jesus stepped down from heaven. He came and lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die so that we could be reconciled to God. That's, that's the goal. So as we begin this series here in, in the Gospel of Luke, I want to begin it the same way I begin every new series. When we open up a book of the Bible for the first time in a series, um, I want to give you some of the background, some of the foundation of the text that we're going to be studying. And, and so we're going to do that here with the Gospel of Luke. Luke was written uh, by a Greek Gentile uh, by the name of, guess it, guess, Luke, right? Luke was not an apostle. Um, Luke um, most likely wrote it in the early 60s AD. Most scholars think it was 61, 62 AD. And a lot of that has to do with what's not mentioned, especially in Acts, which is also written by Luke. We'll get to that in a second. Um, The letter to the Colossians tells us that Luke was uh, a close friend of the apostle Paul and that he was a doctor. In fact, Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. Um, And because Luke was a doctor, he is a very detail-oriented individual, which means um, that Luke is not only the longest of the four Gospels, it's the longest book in the New Testament. It is an incredibly detailed book, um, and, and as I said, um, we, we know from the introduction to, this, the, the, to the gospel in, in chapter 1 that Luke wasn't an eyewitness to what Jesus saw. He wasn't one of the apostles. Um, he got all, most of his information by talking to those who had been eyewitnesses, by gathering those firsthand accounts in order to complete a narrative of Jesus. And, and of course, no conversation about Luke would be complete without talking about Acts, which some people know. I'm still surprised some don't, but maybe you don't know. Acts is actually like Luke part two. It's a sequel. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that the book of Acts was actually intended to be part of the book of Luke. Like it was supposed to be one book and it was just divided in half because of the limits of papyrus scrolls, which is what these original manuscripts were written on. Um, So um, as you study the book of Acts, what you would begin to notice if you're looking closely is in the second half of the book of Acts, the narrative shifts a little bit. It goes from talking in the third person to the first person plural. So what you see is instead of, uh, instead of reading they and them, you read we and us. You see, Luke, um, while he didn't personally uh, see Jesus' ministry here on earth, he was a traveling companion of Paul's. Uh, and, and no doubt Paul, along with the other apostles, were much of the source information that Luke gathered to write this gospel that we're going to be studying over the next six weeks in seven sermons. And as, uh, as we go on this journey, as we survey the gospel here, um, you're going to see that work itself out. We're going to start seeing some of this. This is a reliable collection of a historical account of Jesus's life and ministry here on earth. And as we come to Luke chapter 4, what we're seeing is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
Now, in the first three chapters that are building up to Luke chapter 4, we see the start of Jesus' ministry getting ready. We, we see his birth and his dedication at the temple. We read about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. We read about Jesus' baptism. We read that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a, dove, like a dove. And then there's this voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 30, or twenty. Three, where we read that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old. Jesus was 30 years old when he started his ministry. And what follows after that is a genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Adam. Now, unlike the other genealogies, which don't go quite back as far, this one was intentionally going all the way back to Adam because one of the big themes from Luke's gospel is that Jesus came to reconcile all people to God including Gentiles, including those who were not Jews, including you and me. Jesus came on a mission to reconcile people from every tribe and tongue and nation back to himself, back to God. And so we see at the very beginning of the gospel of Luke that the genealogy dates all the way back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And that brings us to our text today, Luke chapter 4. So it ends with 3.23, gives us that, that genealogy, and then we come to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to look at a few verses in Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. The Bible says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours." And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, as we begin to study your word, as we begin to look at your text, as we begin to see what it was like, how you started your ministry, God, would you teach us something new today? Would you teach us how we go about in our ministry? As we examine how you started, Lord Jesus, would you show us, would you open our hearts and our our eyes and our minds to understand this text, to, to apply it to our lives, and then to walk out of here encouraged, refreshed, ready for a new week of serving you, of living on mission for you. Lord God, we thank you in advance for what we know that you will do. Be with us today as we go into your word. In your name we pray, amen. The title of my message today is right there on the screens for you to read, Lessons from the Wilderness. Lessons from the Wilderness. I chose that title because as we look at Jesus begin his ministry, he doesn't really begin the way we would expect him to begin. He doesn't expect by doing some miracles in the middle of a city and drawing a large crowd. Rather, he begins by leaving everything behind and going out following the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, fasting, and being tempted by the devil. And and as we begin to study Jesus' life and ministry in this series, as we begin to look at our text here, I think it'll be helpful for us to draw some lessons from how Jesus began. After all, unlike most of what we're going to see in the course of this series, Jesus isn't teaching us here with his words. He's teaching us with his actions. Jesus is teaching us by his example. So as we look at this, I think it would be helpful for us to see what lessons can we draw from Jesus' time in the wilderness. 
Our text begins today by saying in verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So how did Jesus begin his ministry? The text says that Jesus returned from the Jordan, from his baptism, and that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And that he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus' ministry began with Jesus being led by the Spirit. That, that's what we see here. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It, it means several things. First, it means that Jesus lived his life in submission to God. Even though he was God. Think about that. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is part of the Trinity who's come to earth. But he's submitting to his leadership. He's submitting to God the Holy Spirit during his ministry here on earth. And as I read this story, I I couldn't help but, but ask the question, who's leading my ministry? Who's leading your ministry? As we serve the Lord together, who is leading our ministry? Am I led by the Spirit? Are you led by the Spirit? Are we as a church led by the Spirit? Because if we are, there's a pretty decent chance that he may lead us somewhere we don't want to go. If he's leading us, we're going to follow him. This, This here isn't a metaphor. I mean... If we can be honest here, Jesus is being led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And and it's not like some some metaphor to represent, oh, he's, he's in the wilderness and he just needs to find his inner peace and calm. No, this is this is the actual wilderness. He's going out into the desert. He's going out where he will be susceptible to wild animals. He's going out to where he can be susceptible to heat exhaustion, to starvation, to dehydration. But if that's not enough, he's being led into the wilderness, not just to pray and to fast, not just to be tempted, but to be be tempted by the devil himself. And, and, And for just a second, we need to address this. We have to talk about this because while most of us will stand up and we will say, yes, we believe our Bibles and we believe that Jesus was an actual person who really lived and really died on a cross for our sins, who really rose again, while we believe all of that is true, I think there are a lot of us who, though we may not say it with our words, with our actions, we would say that we don't really believe that the devil exists. But our Bibles are clear the devil, Satan, Beelzebub, whatever you want to call him, that's all the same name of the the same individual. The devil is an actual personal being who stands in direct opposition to God and his purposes. That's clear throughout our Bibles. It's not just foolish um, to, to think that the devil doesn't exist. It's dangerous. The apostle Peter told us that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy if, if I were to go out into the African wilderness and I were to tell myself, self, there's no need to be afraid of lions. They're made up by Disney to sell toys and movies. They're not real. They're a myth from long ago. If I were to say that to myself, that doesn't change the reality that I'm going out into the wilderness where there are actual lions who are going to eat me. I mean, I look like food to a lion. Am I right? So, so it's not just foolish to deny reality, it's dangerous. And Satan is very real. But, but getting back to my point here, getting back to our text here, what we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This isn't some low-level demon. It's not like, you know, Satan, Jr., Jr., or something, right? This is the devil. This is Satan himself. And the temptation that Jesus faces is real temptation. Yes, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And because he is fully man, he is susceptible to temptation. He's susceptible to fear. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was fully human, just like you and me. And as he walked on earth, he followed the lead of the Holy Spirit, even when that leading was not necessarily where he would have chosen to go. And you, you can't miss the picture that's being painted here. Um, you, you have to understand what's actually happening. This is not one uh, a picture of Satan attacking Jesus, trying to derail his ministry before it even begins. In fact, what we're seeing here is that the initiator of this event is not the, Satan, not the devil Satan, but God. The picture is that of the anointed one of the Lord, of Jesus going out, being led by the Spirit on the offensive, led out to confront the devil. So our first lesson that we can learn from Jesus' time in the wilderness is that we must always be prepared to follow the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. And, and I'm not just talking about lip service here. I don't mean that we just say, I'm going to pray about that. I, I mean, we actually follow him. We actually seek him. We actually submit to his leadership. And then as he leads us like Jesus we follow, even if it's scary, even if it's where we don't want to go. That's what Jesus did. He followed the Spirit because he understood that if the Spirit leads us somewhere, he's going to go there with us. Charles Spurgeon, um, I'm a big fan of him. If you, if you haven't read any of his writings, he was a pastor uh, almost 200 years ago now who, who lived in England, uh, a Big, booming voice kind of pastor, a Baptist, so we know we got to like him, right? But Charles Spurgeon said, the spirit of, um, that in here, that, that Jesus, um, the spirit of God may lead us where we will have to endure trial. If he does, and this is the key to what Spurgeon said, we are safe and we shall come off as conquerors even as our master did. Think about that. The Spirit may lead us somewhere, but if, if he leads us somewhere, he is going to go with us. And because he goes with us, we're safe. We're safe if he leads us out into the wilderness because he's going with us. And if we follow his lead, we will come off as conquerors. You see, the beauty of Jesus' experience, especially as we look at it from this side of the cross, is it, it can actually be seen in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. You see, a few minutes ago, I read to you this verse right here. Hebrews 2.17, where, where we read that therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But that's, that's verse 17. Take a look at verse 18. Because in verse 18 we re read, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus followed the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The temptation of, of Jesus wasn't just a side, side note. The, the Spirit had a purpose as he led Jesus into the wilderness. And because of Jesus following the Spirit, he's able to help us when we are tempted. We're able to be helped by Jesus. So like Jesus, we follow the Spirit as he leads us. That's the first one of those little fill in the blanks for you there. But as Jesus followed the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, he was out there for 40 days. He fasted and prayed 40 days. It doesn't sound like that long a time period of time, especially when you say it like that. I don't understand why that is when you say 40 days. It just, that sounds like a, a short period of time, but do you realize that 40 days is basically six weeks. I don't understand it, but six weeks sounds like a long time. Now, counting today, we are six Sundays away from Easter. That's 35 days from today to Easter Sunday. Jesus fasted for 40 days. Could you imagine if your next meal was brunch on Easter Sunday? Like, think about that. That's a long time, right? Jesus was out there for, for 40 days. He was led into the wilderness. He fasted for six weeks, but... More than that, after not eating for six weeks, he was tempted by the devil. And as we look at these three temptations today, uh, there are important lessons that we can draw, both from the temptations and from Jesus' response to those temptations. So let's take a look. 
The first temptation we come to is in verse 3. Luke records that the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So so place yourself into Jesus' shoes. Put yourself out there in the wilderness. You've been fasting for 40 days. You haven't eaten anything for six weeks. You're incredibly hungry. That's what the end of verse 2 actually tells us. It says, And when they, the, the 40 days of fasting, were ended, he was hungry. Jesus was a man just like you and I. He experienced hunger, and after not eating for six weeks, he's hungry. You're at the point where you feel as though you may die. In fact, while, while starvation studies are actually very rare because of the ethical concerns with the subject, it's, it's hard to actually do a study. Most, uh, most people, the consensus seems to be that around eight weeks or so, death is likely to set in. Jesus is here at the end of six weeks. Jesus is starving. Not, not the kind of starving our, our kids say that they, they are when, when we won't let them have a snack 30 minutes before dinner. Not that kind of starving. He's literally starving. And the devil comes and says to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to be bread. And what we've got to see here is we look at this temptation is, is the craftiness of the devil. We, we see our enemy and he's, he's really kind of smart in how he attacks Jesus. Because Jesus is starving. So Satan tempts him with an attack that's aimed squarely at Jesus' weak point. He goes after the weak point. He's going after his hunger. But the target isn't actually Jesus' hunger. The target is Jesus' pride. It's his pride. In essence, Satan is saying, prove that you're really who that voice back in the, in the wilderness, back at your, your baptism says that you are. Prove that you're the son of God. Because if you're the son of God, this should be easy for you. I mean, think about it. Have any of us ever been tempted to turn a stone into a loaf of bread? We haven't. Have any of us ever been tempted to turn one physical object into another physical object? We haven't. Why haven't we? Because it's not possible. Like magicians, that's, that's sleight of hand. It's not actually changing something. But for Jesus, it was possible. It was absolutely possible. Jesus absolutely could have commanded that stone to become a loaf of bread. And here's the crazy part. If he had the stone would have obeyed. The stone would have become a loaf of bread. Why? Because Jesus is God. So if he commands the stone to become bread, it becomes bread. That's the thing about temptation. In order for temptation to be a legitimate tempt, in order for it to actually offer us something, it needs to be possible. And this was absolutely possible for Jesus Satan was challenging Jesus to use the powers that God had given him for his own personal, and and we can add this, real needs. Jesus hadn't eaten in six weeks. He was legitimately hungry. But as Jesus responds, we see that he saw right through this challenge because Jesus understood that there's more to life than a full stomach. So he responds in verse four, it is written. And and I want to pause right there to ensure you see how quickly Jesus pulls out what Spurgeon referred to as Christ's sword. I, I love that. Spurgeon says, see how swiftly he drew it out of its sheath. What a sharp two-edged sword is this to be used against Satan. You also believer have this powerful weapon in your hand. Let no man take it from you. Believe in the inspiration of scripture. Jesus points to scripture. In fact, with each of these temptations, Jesus responds with scripture. Each time he's challenged by Satan, each time he looks to the Bible to show him how he ought to respond. And it's the same thing for you and I. This is why we have, uh, as a church, been so emphatic about our emphasis on Scripture. It's why we have Bible readings. It's why we have daily discipleship verses. It's why we have daily Bible readings. It's why I want you to get connected to, to a discipleship group where you can study the Word of God and hide it in your heart and memorize it. 
God's word is a weapon that we can use to fight temptation, just as Jesus did. So Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Here he's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, but he's only quoting part of the text. He's only quoting a a small portion of it. You see, all of Deuteronomy 8 is about remembering the Lord. It's about remembering all that God had done, our utter dependence on him. And the rest of Deuteronomy 8.3 says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Satan is tempting Jesus to value the gift more than the giver. to to use the gift to bolster his pride, to prove his worth, to prove his value. He's tempting him to use the gift for his own personal needs. But Jesus knew that what we need is God, not his gifts. We need God, not his gifts. Jesus didn't need bread. He needed God. And so do we. That's the lesson we can draw from this first temptation. We need God, not his gifts. God's gifts are good. They're they're very good. Bread in that moment would have been good, but Jesus understood that that wasn't his deepest need. God blesses us in so many ways. And his gifts, they, they do actually benefit us. But what we really need is him. What we really need is a life reconciled to our creator. So after Jesus resisted the first temptation, Satan tries again. Verse 5 tells us that the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. We don't know how that happened. We don't know if they walked up to some place where they had a great view. We don't know if they levitated. We don't know if he showed him a vision. That's not really the point. Any of those options is a feasible option. That's not the point. The point is the temptation that comes after that. He said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. In the first temptation, Satan appealed to Jesus's hunger in order to challenge his pride. In this second temptation, he changes tactics a little bit. He he shifts from pride to power and prestige. Scripture makes it clear that Satan isn't claiming an authority that he does not have at this moment. Throughout the Bible, we can see that he is the ruler of this world. So this offer is a real offer. Satan can and does make it, but the offer is more than just power and prestige. The offer is a sort of shortcut. He's offering Jesus a shortcut. You see, the reality is that Jesus would one day reign over the earth. The question is how he would achieve this. Would it be through the shortcut that the devil offers? Or or would it be by submitting to God's will, which included suffering and death? Robert Stein pointed out that what the devil offered Jesus was a crossless path to messiahship. And it's not hard as we look at this to see why that offer could be tempting Satan is offering Jesus the ability to establish a government that was centered on him. It could be a government that was focused on Jesus' desires, on a government that was genuinely concerned with the needs and the welfare of people. But in order to do that, it meant compromise. As Leon Morris put it, it, it meant using the world's methods. For Jesus, it meant turning his back on the calling that God the Father had placed on him. It meant walking away from what the Holy Spirit was leading him into. It meant literal worship of Satan. So Jesus responds again by looking to Scripture. And verse 8 tells us that Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Here he's citing Deuteronomy 6.13. You see, Jesus understood that who we worship matters. Who we worship matters. He understood it so well that he doesn't even address the offer. Did you notice that? Jesus doesn't talk about the offer at all. Instead, he addresses the problem with the offer. And the problem is that Satan wants Jesus to worship him 
not God. That's the problem. Listen, who we worship affects everything. I've told you guys this before. Because who we worship will inevitably lead us to serve that the one that we worship. Don't you find it interesting as we look at this, that when Satan tempted him, he didn't respond with the first or second commandment that Moses or that God gave to Moses. He, he doesn't say, it is written, you shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't say, it is written, you shall, shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Why doesn't he cite the first or second commandments? I mean, the first commandment, the very first of the Ten Commandments says that you cannot worship anyone but God. Why doesn't Jesus cite the first commandment? The answer is that Jesus understood that there is more to worship than just worship. There's more to worship than just the actual worship. He understood that we will inevitably serve the one that we worship. Satan knew that Christ had come to serve the Lord God. But Satan doesn't ask Jesus to serve him. He asks him to worship him. Who we worship matters. Now, I I doubt anyone in here would say that they worship Satan. None of us are saying that we worship Satan. But do you worship someone or something other than God? If you want to know the answer to that question, it might be helpful to ask the question, what takes first place in your life? What takes first place in your life? Do you worship your family? Do you worship your kids? Do you worship sports? Do you worship your money? Do you worship your home? Do you worship your job? What takes first place in your life? A few years ago, I I had a friend that I served with in the Navy who learned this lesson the hard way. He's still not a Christian, although I pray for him. I witness to him when I get to talk to him. He was, though, an incredibly successful naval officer. He was a rock star in the fighter community of the Navy. Like, he was on the up and up. This guy had friends who were admirals. Like, I don't know any admirals personally. Like, I've worked for a couple, but I don't have friends that are admirals. This guy had a three-star admiral checking in on his career. He was a rock star in his career. But by the time that we met during our department head tours uh, at our squadron, his, his personal life was a train wreck. It was a complete mess. His wife was struggling after the death of her sister, and that bled over into their marriage. And, and his marriage, it was just completely falling apart. He never had time for his wife. He never had time for his kids. For years, he had prioritized his career. He had worshipped his career at the expense of everything else. I remember how we had just so many heartbreaking conversations after his wife packed up the kids in the house and moved across the country and left him there. And all too too late, he realized that he had made an incredible mistake. He had worshipped his career. He had served his career. And in the process, he lost his family. And probably a lot more. Who we worship matters. It's just one example. There's millions of them out there. Who we worship matters. Which is why we worship God. Because when we have God as the one we worship, when we live with God at the center of our lives, worshiping and serving God, we live inside the plan that he has given us. The the plan that he's given us for our lives. And that plan, it's for our good. It's for our good and his glory. When we walk outside of that plan, everything falls apart. That's why Jesus didn't even respond to the offer that Satan gave. He knew the problem went far deeper than power and prestige. It went way beyond just getting to rule over the earth. It meant abandoning God's plan in order to take a shortcut. So Jesus repeated scripture back to Satan and rejected the offer. 
From there, in in verses 9 through 11, Satan presents the third temptation. Luke tells us that he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Twice now, Jesus has rejected the Satan. He has put, rebuffed Satan by quoting scripture. So this time, Satan tries to take scripture and use it against Jesus, to tempt Jesus. And again, he's appealing to Jesus's pride. He's saying, if you're the son of God, if, if you are who you say you are, if you are who that voice said you are at your baptism, prove it. The Bible says that God will protect you. Hold hold him to his promise and make him do it. And you won't be surprised as we talk about the scripture that Satan quoted to know that he is taking it way out of context. His interpretation is far from correct. You see, Satan this time, he's quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And that psalm just is not a messianic psalm. There's, there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence that Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, um, which the devil quoted, was interpreted messianically in Judaism. They, they didn't see it that way. But if the psalm states a truth concerning any believer, and, and I believe it does, how much more is this true of the Messiah? How much more is this true of Jesus? Yet knowing scripture, knowing it is not enough. We have to interpret it correctly. So how do we interpret Psalm 91? How how do we understand this text? Psalm 91 is not a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that proclaims the faithfulness of God. It's a psalm that tells the believer to place his or her trust in God. We're going to do something a little bit strange. We're going to go look at Psalm 91, the whole thing. I'm not going to break it all down to you, but I want you to hear this. So let's take a look. Psalm 91, the psalmist proclaims, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, and no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What are we seeing there? That's the whole of Psalm 91. Those last few verses, verses 14 through 16, there's been a shift in the first portion of the psalm leading up to there. The psalmist is telling you how we can trust in the Lord. But in verses 14 through 16, we're seeing God himself speak and he's promising to take care of you. What we're seeing here is a psalm that encourages us to place our trust in the Lord. It's a psalm that's reminding us that the Lord is our refuge and our stronghold in times of danger, in times of trouble. But Satan is taking scripture and he's twisting it. He's he's taking it and he's saying, make God keep his promises, force his hand. The psalmist tells us to trust God. Satan tells Jesus to presume upon him. You see, the promises that Satan quoted, they're they're true promises. 
But trusting in God's protection does not mean we get to make demands of God. Parents, we we know this. We get this, right? Because we have the same sort of relationship with our kids. My kids, Katie and Kylie, they know that I want them to be safe. They know that I will keep them safe. I will provide for their safety where they can learn and grow and, and become mature adults who love Jesus. But that doesn't mean that they can go out into our backyard, out to our fire pit and throw in all the scraps from the fence we've building into the center of the fire ring and then go grab a five-gallon can of gasoline and dump that whole thing on the wood and then light a match and expect me to there to protect them from the fireball that's going to consume our entire backyard. Right? Right? That's, that's not what the promise to keep them safe is all about. And it's the same thing with us with God. Yes, we absolutely can trust God to keep his promises. But we don't place ourselves in danger to try and force his hand. We position ourselves in his care. We don't abuse his goodness. That's the point of Psalm 91. And that's exactly what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. He was trying to get him to force his hand. So Jesus answers him in verse 12. And he tells Satan, it is said... You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And just like the other two temptations, Jesus is quoting scripture. This time he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16, which says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, comma, as you tested him at Massah. I think it's interesting to know why he quoted that verse. What happened at Massah? If you want to know what happened at Massah, you need to turn to Exodus chapter 17. Israel is in the first three months or so of their exodus out of Egypt. They're coming out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 16, we read that the Lord provided for Israel. He gave them all that they needed. He gave them quail and manna to eat. And then as, as the people continued to move south toward, toward Sinai, they, they camped out at a place called Rephidim. And the Bible says that they quarreled with Moses because there was no water to drink. So Moses goes and he prays to the Lord and he pleads with the Lord. And the Lord commands Moses to strike the rock with the staff that he had set into the Red Sea. And that water would flow out. And when all of that was said and done, the Bible tells us that Moses renamed the place Massah, which means testing. And Meribah, which means quarreling because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that question that Israel asked in Exodus 17, 7 is essentially the question that Satan is asking Jesus. Is the Lord with you or not? Are you the son of God or not? Will God protect you or not? And Jesus' answer is emphatic. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the lesson that we can draw from this third temptation is that as Christians, we trust God. We don't test him. We trust God. We don't test him. Listen, Jesus absolutely could have thrown himself off of the pinnacle of the temple and he absolutely would have been safe. Again, he's God. But that's not the point. The point is that all of us are called to trust God, to know that for those who love God, all things, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Ricky talked about that last week. Sometimes it's hard to understand that, but it's still true. We can trust God. We can trust him in good times and in bad times. We can trust him with our careers. We can trust him with our finances. We can trust him with our kids. We can trust him with our families. We can and we should trust God. Because we're called, in the Bible, we're called to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not to lean on our own understandings. We're called to know that in all our ways we acknowledge him and he makes our paths straight. That's what we're called to. That's what the Bible says. We trust God. We don't test him. 
And as we return to the text in verse 13, we read that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed until an opportune time. Now, Jesus had resisted Satan's temptation by pointing to the truth of Scripture time and time again, and and the devil got tired of it, so he departed until an opportune time. Now, now that doesn't mean that Jesus never faced temptation. He absolutely did face temptation and trial throughout his whole ministry. Again, he is fully man and fully God. But the face-to-face encounter that he experienced in the wilderness, that kind of encounter, it didn't happen again until about three years later. When, When Jesus was betrayed by his friend, When he prayed in the garden, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Have you ever thought about the fact that that Jesus didn't have to choose the cross? He didn't have to choose the cross. He could have walked away. He chose to lay his life down. He he could have given into the temptations of the flesh and just walked away from the cross, but he didn't. He followed the Father's plan, and that plan led him to Golgotha, where he suffered the most ignoble death by torture imaginable. He laid down his life in order to give you and me eternal life. That was the devil's opportune time there in the garden where he thought he could defeat Jesus once again. But just like in the wilderness, Jesus resisted temptation. And because he did did that, we can find life in him. Because he resisted temptation, we can follow him. We can know God. We can have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Temptation is a part of life. We are constantly going to be fighting it. And if I can just be completely transparent with you guys this week, I was out in California this week. I just felt like I was encountering temptation after temptation after temptation all week long. I felt like I was being bombarded with it as I prepared this text, as I was studying over this text. Spiritually, this has been a hard week for me. If I can just tell you that, I've been praying a lot, a lot of little micro prayers of God right now, right now. My flesh wants to do this. I know you've called me to do this. Help me out right now. Temptation is a part of life but we're called to something different. Temptation will come. We can learn from Jesus and how he encountered temptation. But before before we go, before we get out of here, I want you to see how this passage ends because it, it ends very much like it began. Verses 14 and 15, they tell us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Do you see it there? Do you see it there in the text? How this passage that we're looking at began today and how it ends today. It it began by, by saying that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. And, and it comes to a close the same way that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. This may be, perhaps it it really is, the greatest lesson that we can draw from Jesus' time in the wilderness. It's simple. Walk with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and the Spirit brought him out of the wilderness. And Jesus was empowered for his ministry by the Spirit. How do we resist temptation in this life? How do we get past it? We walk with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul, he he talked about this in Galatians chapter 5. He wrote, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Two things I want you to see out of that text just really quick and I'll get you out of here. First, it, it, it tells us right here that the things of the Spirit are against the things of the flesh and the things of the flesh are against the things of the Spirit uh, for they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. What is it you want to do? If you want to follow God, if you want to follow Christ, then the things of your, 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 the spirit of your flesh is pulling you away from that. But at the same time, if you're feeling that desire, you're feeling that temptation to follow the things of the flesh, the spirit, if you're walking with him, he's grabbing your hand and he's pulling you back and saying, no, 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 no. Come, let's follow Jesus. Do you see that right there in the text? And then he says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. What does that mean? What does it mean to be under the law? It means that, or not under the law, it means that you're set free from the guilt of sin. It means that the the weight of your sin in your life from those times in the past where temptation, you've given in and your sin is crushing you down. It's saying you're out from under that because you're following Christ. If you want to resist temptation, walk with the Spirit. That's how Jesus began his ministry. He began his ministry by returning from these temptations in the wilderness, returning in the power of the Spirit. Here at the Point Church, we have got a lot ahead of us. We've got a lot of work to do ahead of us. We've got a lot of ministry ahead of us. And as we move forward, as we serve our community, as we seek to reach Baldwin County and Alberta with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to do it in the power of the Spirit. Jesus began his ministry by following the Spirit. He he resisted temptation with the help of the Spirit, and then he walked into his ministry in the power of the Spirit. And it should be the same for us. The psalmist said that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I want our labor here in Alberta to be fruitful. I don't want what we are doing here to be in vain. So let's learn from these lessons that Jesus learned and taught us in his time in the wilderness. Let's follow the Spirit in everything that we do. Let's remember that we need God himself, not his gifts. These these things that we're doing here, it's not about buildings or status in the community. it's, It's about leading people to know and love and serve and follow Jesus. And as we lead people to know and love and follow Jesus, let's remember that who we worship It matters. It matters who we worship. We're here to worship God. We're here to worship Jesus. This isn't about Josh or Nathan. It's not about Tim or Joe. It's about worshiping God. We gather together to be worshipers of God. So let's do that. Let's worship God and serve God. Let's take big steps of faith, trusting God. And as we go, As we go, let's always walk with the Spirit. We've got a mission to do. Let's follow Jesus' example as we do it. Can we pray?